This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's Wednesday, January 17th. Donald Trump shows up to a Manhattan courthouse to watch his own jury selection. We start here. The former president stands trial in another defamation case. A continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. A New York jury will decide damages in E. Jean Carroll's case. Leaders of a dysfunctional Congress are summoned to the White House. It's anybody's guess what sort of solution they're going to come up with. What will it take to keep the government from shutting down? And Ukraine says it's running out of ammunition. We're on a test drive of a Ukrainian armored infantry vehicle. An exclusive look inside a Ukrainian arms production facility. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Ann Flaherty. Good morning. Brad is fresh off his trip to Iowa and headed to New Hampshire, so I'll be filling in today. Just 12 hours after winning the Iowa caucuses, former President Donald Trump was back in a New York courthouse, this time opting to appear voluntarily, where he took a seat directly behind Eugene Carroll. Carol is the magazine columnist who says Trump sexually abused her in a Manhattan dressing room in the 1990s. She sued him for that incident and for later defaming her in social media posts. But I uh, uh, felt strong because I knew I was telling the truth and I just stuck to it. Last spring, a jury agreed and awarded her $5 million. The verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. Trump is appealing that verdict, denying all wrongdoing, and saying he doesn't know who Carol is, or at least he didn't before she took him to court. Now Carol's taken Trump to court again to answer defamation charges from 2019. To explain all this, let's bring in ABC correspondent Aaron Katursky, who sat in the courtroom yesterday watching it unfold. Aaron, first, can you explain, didn't she win this case already? She did win her case already, and yes, this is a separate case. It was last May good memory, and that E. Jean Carroll won a $5 million judgment against former President Trump. The judge has already said the earlier trial established the facts, established that Trump sexually assaulted E. Jean Carroll. Trump defamed E. Jean Carroll. So all that's at issue this time, and is how much in damages, if any, Trump should pay. Okay. And I understand that the former president, GOP frontrunner, was there during the jury selection. That must have been a surreal scene. Describe to us what happened. Can you imagine prospective jurors, you know, who are already annoyed they're at jury selection, they come into a courtroom not knowing anything, and there's the former president of the United States seated at the defense table. One woman seemed to either laugh or smile. Uh, there was a guy who stared at him for a good 10 seconds, whether in, in disbelief or awe or hatred or what, we don't know. Uh, but uh, one by one, they went through all of the, the questions you might expect when you're talking about a jury to sit in judgment of the former president. Uh, they were asked about their politics. They were asked about their social media. They were even asked if they had watched The Apprentice, which you know, 10 hands went up in the room. And in the end, 
Um, none of the people who who talked about their their political views or the guy who said he donated to Trump and and believed the lie that the election was stolen from him, he didn't make it on the jury. And it's it's uh, nine citizens who are going to decide whether E. Jean Carroll deserves more money than she has already won from Trump for defamatory statements denying her rape claim. She's accusing me of rape. A woman that I have no idea who she is. It came out of the blue. And I will tell you, I made that statement and I said, well, it's politically incorrect. She's not my type. And that's 100% true. She's not my type. The lawyer for E. Jean Carroll, a woman named Sean Crowley, who's a former federal prosecutor, asked the jury to ask themselves, what is it going to take? How much money is it going to take for former President Trump to stop? In fact, as he sat in court, the plaintiff's attorney counted 22 social media posts from Trump disparaging E. Jean Carroll, calling her a fake woman, calling the case fake, saying that he didn't know her, never touched her. And those are the same kinds of statements that got him in trouble with the jury last year and that could get him in trouble with with a jury this time, too. So he keeps speaking about her and in ways that could get him in trouble. Can she just sue him over and over again? I suppose she could. But look, Eugene Carroll is 80 years old and her attorneys say that when he called her a liar, said she made up her rape claim, uh, talked about her as a political operative, said she had ulterior motives. In an instant, her attorney said Trump unleashed his his supporters. And within days, a reputation that she built over decades as an advice columnist, form, formerly of Elle magazine and, and television, all that disappeared in an instant. And and she ended up enduring a barrage of, of not only criticism, but some rather you know vulgar things said about her uh, that that she says destroyed her her reputation and and made her unable to to, to function socially the way she had. And the defense message was essentially, got to suck it up. You're famous. That's what you wanted. And you don't deserve any more money. Wow. So what happens next? Opening statements come today, Anne, and we should hear from E. Jean Carroll straight away. She's not going to be as expansive as she was in the last trial explaining what happened in that dressing room. So many of these facts are already established, and the judge said they're off limits in this trial. But she is ex- expected to explain how she says she was affected by Trump's words. Her attorney said that he was the president of the United States when he made these disparaging and defamatory remarks. So he had the the loudest microphone in the world. And, and she's going to explain to the jury what it was like to be on the receiving end of that. So it's a total false accusation. And I don't know anything about her. And she's made this charge against others. His attorney has signaled that former President Trump wants to testify. In fact, He asked that the trial be put off until after his mother-in-law's funeral scheduled for Thursday so that he could testify more easily. And the judge wasn't going to do that, but did make arrangements for him to testify on Monday, the 22nd, if he so chooses. But and he is going to be really limited in what he can say. He cannot say he doesn't know this woman. He cannot say that this sexual assault never happened. The judge has already told the jury that it did. So the challenge for Trump and his defense attorneys are going to rest, uh, try to restrain the, the parameters of his testimony. Aaron Katursky, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Anne. Next up on Start Here, a high-stakes meeting at the White House. 
More when we come back. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. In Washington yesterday, like much of the country, it was a snow day. School was canceled, the federal government was closed, and kids, including my own, spent the day making pancakes and sledding with their friends. It's all good stuff, except if you work for Congress. Because in just two days, the government runs out of money. House Republicans remain divided on whether to negotiate with Democrats, and many are insisting upon a major overhaul of the U.S. immigration system. It's a seriously tall order with just hours left on the clock. Now, House and Senate leaders say they have a plan for a short-term bill to keep the government afloat until March. But what about after that? Well, today, President Biden has summoned the four top leaders of Congress to the White House, including House Speaker Mike Johnson, to figure all this out. Let's bring in ABC's Capitol Hill reporter, Allie Pacorn, to break this down. Allie, what are we expecting from the meeting today? Well, it'll certainly be a big meeting. This is going to be one of the first times that the newly minted Speaker Mike Johnson meets with President Biden face to face. And when all four of these leaders get in the room, and it's anybody's guess what sort of solution they're going to come up with, because as it comes to the southern border, we're in a bit of a knot And that knot is affecting our ability to fund all sorts of things, including Ukraine and Israel, other items that are huge priorities for this administration. So Mike Johnson's going to be there. He's sort of representing this, uh, you know, the the kind of the hard right of the Republican Party. They want to change U.S. border policy. Um, Is he going to be in the minority in this room? Yeah. So everyone in the room, including Democrats, would tell you that they recognize that there's a problem going on at the southern border and they want to address it. The question is, how do we address it and what would it mean to address it in a way that's going to be palatable to both Democrats and Republicans who would ultimately be needed to pass any sort of package here? So when we get into the room today, you're going to have Johnson, as you mentioned, he he represents that most hardline approach. And his perspective is he wants a very aggressive border bill that was passed by the House earlier this year using exclusively Republican support. If President Biden wants a supplemental spending bill focused on national security, it better begin by defending America's national security. Democrats have already declared that bill dead on arrival in the Senate. But also, 
On the other side of the table will be your Senate leaders. That's Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. It's not often that you see these two getting together to advocate for the same thing. So this supplemental request that they're going to be going over today in the room is kind of a rarity. And that Schumer and McConnell both really want it. At stake is the security of our country, the security of our friends abroad, including Ukraine and Israel, and nothing less than the future of Western democracy. We cannot afford to let these issues go unaddressed. Both of these men are huge supporters of Ukraine. But McConnell, in an effort to appease some of the Republicans in his conference, has said he's not going to back any Ukraine aid package that doesn't also include substantive policy changes at the southern border. Addressing the border crisis at home is a fundamental part of legislation that will help America meet each of the most glaring national security challenges. However, what that looks like for Mitch McConnell and what that looks like for Mike Johnson are different. And it's created what is essentially a pretty massive staring contest going on with no clear solution about how to fix things at the southern border. So President Biden is going to be calling in everyone today to see if there's a way to get to yes. So while this top level meeting happens, there's going to be a lot of media attention on that. But there is this other issue, which is that the government's going to run out of money. So what happens next with that? That's right. The government is actually a matter of days from shutting down on Friday night at midnight. And so Congress is going to need to be acting pretty quickly over the next few days to try to stop that from occurring. If they don't on Friday night at midnight, there will be a partial government shutdown. The good news is the ball has already started rolling to try to kick the can down the road and buy Congress a little bit more time to work out longer term funding solutions. The Senate voted last night the first in a series of procedural steps to extend the government funding deadline through March. But that actually still doesn't address the longer term issues with government funding that have plagued this Congress for several months now. So House Speaker Johnson, he has members within his own party who are very upset about another continuing resolution. Is he risking his speakership by putting this out there? That's a great question, because You certainly wouldn't be wrong to point out that what Johnson is teeing his members up to vote on on Friday is exactly what Kevin McCarthy led his members into voting for that eventually got him stripped of his role as Speaker of the House in October. It is a near identical comparison. Johnson is once again going to be relying on Democratic votes to move a stopgap funding measure that does nothing to exact cuts that Republicans want to see forward. We don't think Johnson's going to lose his job for it. There is a lot less of an appetite to get rid of Speaker Johnson, who's only been in the role for about three months. I think House Republicans recognize that it's not necessarily great for the conference to be without a leader, especially going into an election year. We haven't seen a lot of that call to like strip him fully of his role, but certainly his right flank is very unhappy with this move. House Freedom Caucus, after it was announced on Sunday night that the Senate and House would try to move forward with this stopgap measure, called it a surrender. There were efforts to talk Johnson out of a larger funding agreement he and Schumer struck. Johnson is sticking by his decision to move forward with a short-term bill. He's saying it's going to buy Republicans the time they need to work out these longer solutions. But certainly, he's going to have some hell to pay with his right flank, who's very unhappy with this position. ABC's Allie Picorn on Capitol Hill. Allie will be watching your reporting. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Okay, with all this dysfunction in Congress, it's almost easy to forget that there's another major crisis thousands of miles away, but one that Pentagon officials say is taking on increased urgency. The most effective response to Russia's ongoing missile and UAV attacks is to provide Ukraine with vital air defense capabilities and other types of military equipment that it needs to defend itself. Earlier this month, Ukraine's Air Force said it was only able to shoot down 18 of the 51 Russian missiles fired in a single night, raising questions about the country's air defense missile stocks. The country also is believed to be running seriously low on ammunition. The, the race to produce more military equipment. Can, can Ukraine compete with Russia on that? Sure. Sure, we can compete and we're competing very successfully, I think. This week, ABC foreign correspondent Tom Sufi Burge got an exclusive look inside a secret location in Ukraine to check out some of the country's growing domestic arms production. Let's bring in Tom to talk about it. Tom, let's start with the current state of fighting there right now. What is it that you're seeing on the ground? Well, and we were sort of near the fighting quite recently. Um, when you get close to the front lines, you can hear it. I mean, you can hear the booms of artillery, mortars. You can hear small arms fire. We also visited a medical stabilization point. I mean, that is a kind of makeshift, very simplistic hospital in a secret location because they're worried that it could be targeted by the Russians just back from the front lines. What are the typical injuries you're seeing at your stabilization point? Um, I would say the majority is uh, uh, fragment wounds uh, of the limbs. Uh, we have um, a lot of soldiers uh, stepping on the landmines. The chief doctor there basically said to us that he has seen 15,000 casualties in the entire war and he's basically become numb by everything. I think that the consequences of this um, I, I will see in like a couple of years after the war ends, if I survive. And he says at the moment they're seeing up to 80 casualties uh, in a matter of hours once things get busy. And we went to a major trauma hospital just a few hours west of there, so away from the fighting. Very hard for you and your staff. And doctors there told us they're seeing a 30% rise in casualties now. Heavily wounded soldiers coming through their doors compared to just a few weeks ago. So I think, you know, casualties for the Ukrainians are mounting. What's happened in the last few weeks is the Russians have, I think, retaken the initiative. They have way more firepower, and Ukrainian soldiers are telling this, this time and time again. The, the Russians have more artillery, more artillery ammunition, more drones, and we're talking about lethal explosive drones, which are kind of flown on kind of single journeys at a target. And the Russians have way more of those deadly drones, and we're seeing the impact of that in those rising casualties. So a real mismatch in firepower resulting in these higher casualties. But so tell us about this arms production facility that you went to. Well, the Ukrainians are definitely and I think this has taken added urgency because of the deadlock between the Biden administration and Congress over additional funding for the war here in Ukraine. And really, the, the funding people have got to realize the funding that has been approved by Congress is pretty much running out. And that's what the White House is saying now. On the ground in Ukraine, there's been this impetus over the last few months to build up Ukrainian arms production. And I think that's taken on this added urgency now. Well, we're on a test drive of a Ukrainian armoured infantry vehicle, and Ukraine is really ramping up its arms production. We went inside a series of warehouses, a secret location. All of these boxes along here, there are mortar launchers, are there? Yep. 
the company, a Ukrainian company called Ukrainian Armor, which manufactures mortars, mortar shells, armored vehicles, and trucks for carrying missile launchers. They spread their production very thinly over multiple sites because what we've seen in those missile attacks you mentioned at the top from Russia is that they are trying increasingly to target Ukrainian arms manufacturing sites. But they are ramping up production. Uh, the military production is booming, not only in quantities, booming in quantities, but also extended in the product range. As in you're producing uh, more military equipment and different types Different now. types, and we extend and we adopt to the conditions of the war. The, the problem is, is that Ukraine is starting from a much lower base than Russia. And I think at the moment in the war, we're really seeing the fact that, you know, ever since Vladimir Putin first became president of Russia, and that's 24 years ago, you know, Russia has been building up its military. And yes, lots of Western officials have said, well, Russia's missile stocks are running low because they fired so many throughout the course of this long war. But I think in the autumn, what we've been told by Ukrainian officials is that the Russians were stockpiling missiles. We're seeing that now from their recent attacks. And the, the Russians just simply have way more military might, way more firepower and way more capacity to build arms and produce weaponry. And that is a major challenge for the Ukrainians, which they're trying to address. So then what happens if the U.S. doesn't reach an agreement and the money dries up, the support from overseas dries up? Well, we're already seeing the fact that Ukrainian artillery units, we visited an artillery unit a, a few miles back from the front lines in a position where they were firing from. We could really feel the force of this American gun. But these Ukrainian artillery units are now having to limit the amount they fire. The commander showed us their sort of stash of artillery shells, US supplied, and they had about 20 shells. And he said during the summer when the Ukrainians were on the offensive, they would have about 150, 160 shells. So it's a massive, massive reduction. They're having to limit how much they fire. Ukrainian officials are telling me this, that sometimes they're chat chatting to troops on the ground and the troops are saying, where is the ammunition? And they are limited. They can't give cover to Ukrainian infantry, which is a massive, massive thing. So we're already seeing the impact. Although the, the shortage of artillery shells is also down to the fact that the West overall isn't producing enough artillery shells for this war and for the demand more generally. Israel has taken some of the American stock as well. In terms of Ukraine's manufacturing of weaponry, what it's calling out for from the United States and its allies is more cooperation, more technology coming to the Ukrainians to help them build better weaponry. They probably can't for many, many years produce as much as the Russians. But what they're saying is share more of your technology, maybe not your most sensitive stuff, but share something more with us. Help us help us build better weaponry. And that is where we think we can get an edge over the Russians. Even if we run out of uh, weapons, we will fight with shovels. And we sat down with the foreign minister of Ukraine, uh, Dmitry Kulieba, and he came up with a pretty stark warning. If the West is not able of uh, stopping Russia in Ukraine, who else is it able to stop in other parts of the world? China. I leave these answers to you. You have... You have to reflect on this. And he was pretty resolute, the foreign minister of Ukraine. He ruled out sitting down for negotiations with Russia until Ukraine has a much more favorable position on the battlefield. 
And of course, the argument by the Ukrainians is that the only thing standing between Russia and Western Europe is their military. So do you want them fighting with shovels or do you want to supply them with real munitions? Great reporting from ABC's Tom Sufi Burge. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Anne. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, honk if you hate silly road signs. One last thing is next. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. And one last thing. If you ever got a chuckle from a highway road sign, that's about to change. We're talking about those big light-up boards on the side of the road that might say something goofy like, don't hurry, drive happy. In fact, the signs are so popular in Arizona that the state's transportation department even let the public vote on their favorites for the past seven years. Signal to the left, signal to the right, merge real smooth. You see that one right there says designated drivers make the best New Year's dates. Last year's winners were seatbelts always pass the vibe check, along with I'm just a sign asking a driver to use turn signals. But what if you didn't get that that last sign was a reference to Julia Roberts in the movie Notting Hill, which would be a lot of you considering the movie is now 25 years old. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. What if you wound up focusing on trying to figure that out instead of focusing on, say, driving safely? Well, enter the U.S. government. A federal agency has finalized a new 1,100-page rulebook for traffic control devices that officially puts the kibosh on anything funny. The Federal Highway Administration now says signs can't include an obscure meaning, references to pop culture, or messages that are, quote, intended to be humorous. Instead, safety billboards have to be, quote, clear and direct and meaningful to the road user. The feds are giving states two years to make the change. So that sign in Massachusetts that says visiting in-laws, slow down, get there late. Or the Pennsylvania sign, hocus pocus, drive with focus. Those will all be in violation of federal rules. The Federal Highway Administration says those humorous or lighthearted displays could be misunderstood or understood by only some drivers. And they say if that happens, it defeats the purpose of posting the sign in the first place. Of course, not everyone is happy with the government steering in this direction. Some critics say it's an example of federal bureaucrats telling states what to do. Drivers who've enjoyed these funny signs will have to find something else to fuel their laughter. For these and more stories, check out abcnews.com or the ABC News app. Before we go, I want to wish a quick happy birthday to my niece, Caroline Dommel, who is turning 21 today. It's a huge milestone. I'm Ann Flaherty. Brad's back in tomorrow. I'll catch you next time. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. 
Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.